0: Welcome to the Tech Night Owl Live, the show for PC users who can Steinberg. This week on the Tech Night Owl Live, we'll be featuring Adam Inks on the 24th anniversary of Tidbits and also Daniel Aaron Dilger, cutting edge commentator. All this and more on the Tech Night Owl Live. Ah! We have Adam Inks of Tidbits and Take Control Books, and this week, Adam has celebrated an anniversary. 24 years of tidbits. We'll get into other subjects later, but this is fascinating because in any field, anything that lasts for 24 years is a miracle. <laughs> How do you explain this?
1: Not paying attention. You just kind of keep doing the same same old thing and, you know, gee, time passes. It's really quite astonishing. It's like time sure does pass when you're having fun. It's true. And, and you know, it's funny because I, I look back at this. I mean, I don't feel like I've been doing this for 24 years, but because it's tidbits, I can go back and read everything I've written for 24 years. And wow, there's a lot of it.
0: When you look back over the 24 years, and this happens to me if I ever read some of my own stuff, which is one reason why I don't read my old stuff, you start thinking, why did I do that?
1: Yeah, I don't have too much of that. That there is a certain level of, I think, you know, Steve Jobs commented about how, you know, he wasn't interested in history because he was always looking to the future. And I'm not like that, but I don't, for the most part, second guess what I did. So that so I don't have too much of that, that sort of thing. I occasionally will look back at like very early, early stuff. I mean, keep in mind, I was, what, 23 at that point. So yeah, my writing wasn't really nearly as solid as it is now. And I do wonder at some of the editorial decisions I made and, uh, about a few things. But, you know, on the whole, it was 23. I was 24. You know, I didn't really know this stuff at the time. Going back 24 years, how did tidbits get underway? Well, it was almost accidental. So Tanya was working at the essentially the Cornell Computer Store and helping people buy Macs and actually Next machines at the time. She was a little distressed at the level to which her colleagues didn't really know what was going on in the industry. And this is back in the day you remember this, back in the day of Mac Week and InfoWorld and PC Week, these big kind of tabloid-sized weekly technology magazines. And they were all free because you would get them by lying about how much uh, purchasing power you had on a big entry form.
0: Right, you had to basically justify the distribution of a copy to you, and you had to be a mover and a shaker in the industry, someone who influenced lots of purchases of computers, of other equipment, of software.
1: And you know, we worked at Cornell, and even though when we first started getting them, we were students and didn't influence anything, we just put down numbers for Cornell. <laughs> and so everyone did this. I mean, that was one of their problems with their the whole model of sending out these massive weekly publications was that really everyone did lie about their qualifications. But nonetheless, you got these magazines. They were well done magazines with tons of news and lots and lots of reviews, every issue. You know, nowadays, you know, you'll see a few reviews in a magazine, but they would have fifteen or twenty in some issues. It was just nuts how many reviews they'd have. Tanya said, Well, if you wanted to Kind of summarize what was going on in the industry every week for her colleagues, and she thought she would do this in in print. You know, she had page maker skills and wanted to do a little kind of a little internal newsletter. And I said, that sounds like a cool idea. I'll help you write it because I was being a consultant and doing all the same stuff at the same time. But my interests were always much more into electronic publishing, and so I said, you know, I'll you know I'll do this and I'll make a HyperCard stack so we can distribute it in HyperCard too. Tell and our listeners. What, <laughs> what HyperCard was is. HyperCard?
0: Because a lot
1: of Mac users <laughs> yeah. would look at you and say, What? Yeah. <laughs> HyperCard was a program written by Bill Atkinson, who was one of the key guys in the invention of the Macintosh, he was one of Apple's most influential early engineers. And HyperCard was what he called a software erector set. The idea was you could build anything you wanted to with it. So you could make your own app in HyperCard. And it was called a stack because HyperCard had this this metaphor of a stack of cards and each card could have information on it and could have buttons and fields and little programs running and all sorts of stuff like that. And people loved HyperCard. HyperCard There were hundreds and thousands of HyperCard stacks that people wrote with all sorts of really interesting functionality in them because it was easy. It was also a language, the programming language that was sort of behind it was called HyperTalk, and it was very English-like. So you didn't have to be a programmer to write something in HyperCard. So, you know, I made up a HyperCard stack that would hold tidbits. You could read it, each article. Um, each article was a different card. And then the thing that was really cool about it was is when I sent out another issue the next week, you could click a button and the two files would merge. So you'd get this, you'd build up this archive over time of every article that was ever in Tidbits. And keep in mind, this is before the web. This is 1990. So the entire concept of a self archiving publication was kind of a neat thought at the time.
0: Okay. Now, this is very interesting here because the thing you were doing with HyperCard is you were clicking links. Yes. To go from one place to another. Yes. <laughs> which became, of course, the beginning
1: and end of the web. Absolutely. And the HyperCard, there is no question that HyperCard in some ways informed the creation of the web. There were fascinating, fascinating things done in HyperCard. People even wrote internet programs in HyperCard. So there were FTP programs that could retrieve files that were written in HyperCard. And people started to write things where HyperCard stacks could go out over the internet and get information and bring them back into the stack. So in some ways, a HyperCard could be seen as an early web browser. Yes, it was absolutely showing the way towards what we Became came to know as the web. And in some ways, obviously, the web went backwards a whole lot because early HTML and early web, web browsers and whatnot were very, very simple. But if you look at what web apps can do today, they're not a lot different from the kinds of things that people were imagining in HyperCard before the web. Well, there
0: you go. It shows you where Apple was at the very beginning. Okay, so you have this publication... Made in HyperCard. When did that change to become a more generic publication that was sent out by email?
1: Well, it, it lasted 99 issues, so about two years. And what really was the problem was that HyperCard stacks were binary files, so you couldn't just send them around an email. You had to do two things back in the day. You had to compress them so they were smaller. That was used, a program for that called Stuff It. And then you had to use another program to convert the, the still binary compressed file into text. You had to encode it. And that was for that, you used a program called Binhex. So when you received this in email or you downloaded it from a Usenet news group, another early way of distributing things, you had to debinhex hex and then unstuff the file before you could work with it. It was a royal pain. And so, I started talking with this guy named Ian Feldman, who was Swedish, and he suggested that, uh, that we publish tidbits in a straight text format, but a very special one that would be both human-readable. So, you could just look at it and read it with no trouble. But at the same time, it would have what he called implicit markup. So, it, we'd be able to identify headings, be able to identify subheadings, and you'd be able to find body text, and you'd be able to identify links, and all those kinds of things such that it, it was, could be read by a program. And so, he and I worked on this, and this became a, a format called C-text, or Structure Enhanced Text. Wow, okay, we're getting
0: all sorts of lessons here about (laughs) the early ways to distribute online publications, the beginnings of what became the Internet and the way that you access data from the Internet, a lot of stuff that began with tidbits. We have a lot more to cover, by the way. We have Adam Ace of Tidbits and Take Control Books covering 24 years of tidbits. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. (laughs)
3: Gold, it's like nothing else on Earth. From the Romans through the Renaissance, from the Industrial Age to the Space Age, gold has weathered the test of time. For 6,000 years, gold has remained the ultimate store of wealth. According to the World Gold Council and the U.S. Mint, demand is at an all-time high. The stage is being set for the reemergence of gold as the common-sense alternative to a fiat paper currency that gets weaker every day. Midas Resources is proud to offer the hard-hitting report that arms you with the truth you need To protect you and your family from the Fed's plans for your hard-earned money. Don't gamble with your future. Call Midas Resources today and ask for your free copy of As Good As Gold. Call 1-800-686-2237 for the report the Fed hopes you'll never see. As Good As Gold can be yours by calling 800-686-2237. If you have ever thought about owning gold, you must read this report. Call Midas today at 800-686-2237.
5: Question Could too many GMO foods and toxins be overloading your digestive and immune systems? Answer Yes! If you're searching for a powerful detox that's gentle enough to use every day, use Pro-EM-1 from Terragonics. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic that uses good bacteria to suppress pathogens and gently eliminate toxins from your body. A healthy digestive system will cleanse and remove toxins, support weight loss, improve absorption of food nutrients, and aid in controlling yeast and other infections. Pro-EM-1 is made with only non-GMO and certified organic ingredients, has no preservatives, and is dairy, soy, wheat, and gluten-free. Pro-EM-1 is the key to your digestive health. Order Pro-EM-1 daily probiotic cleanse at Terragonics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Also available through Amazon Prime. Pro-EM-1 from Terraganics. Life's getting better.
0: Here on the Tech Night Out Live, we have Adam Ingst of Tidbits and Take Control Books talking about the various things they were doing to distribute Tidbits, first as a hypercard publication, then developing some kind of new structured format. Now, I first became acquainted with your stuff through a book called The Internet Starter Kit. Mm -hmm. So at what point did that come along in relation to what you were doing with Tidbits?
1: Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh dates to about September of 1993. So that's a little bit later. We'd already converted to this text-only format, which people could read. And there was actually a program called EasyView that people could import, again, create that archive. They could import those ctext files into, so they'd have their whole collection of tidbits. And all that had been going on, and I was asked by Hayden Books to write a book about the Internet from the point of view of the Macintosh user. And I did so and it was the fifth book about the internet ever. The the, the fourth book came out a, a week or two beforehand, so there were three that had been out the whole time. And that was frankly huge. That when I look back at when people joined Tidbits, it was that 1993 to 1995 era of when the Internet Starter Kit was just a huge bestseller, because everyone who got it, you know, one of the examples of how to join a mailing list was how to get on the Tidbits mailing list. And so a real lot of people learned about Tidbits through that book, too. I know I learned a lot of stuff early
0: in those years. I don't know when I first subscribed, but it had to be around that time. Okay, so you've got this new custom format. Now, at what point did you move away from the proprietary stuff?
1: Well, the custom format actually in some ways has continued to this day, oh because when John Gruber developed the markup language known as markdown, which is absolutely everywhere, he based it in large part on C text. So Ctext is sort of uh, in many ways a subset of markdown, and so although we've you know tweaked little bits of it here and there, if you still get tidbits in email in plain text format, you're still getting a ctext file. You may not know that, but you are. Because it's so human readable, it just looks right. That was the whole point of it, is it, it just looks right. You don't really worry about that. So, you know, little things like bold. You want to make something bold, you surround it in asterisks. If you want to make something italic, you surround it in underscores. That was standard practice on the internet you know, until in the very early days. And so, when we did it and then Markdown picked it up from us, it it was the sort of thing that it it made sense to people who'd been on the internet for all this time. So, that was kind of cool. It was 1996 or so before we made the next big jump, which was to the web. So, we were not super early on the web because in the early days of the web, you needed to be a real company or a university or something. You couldn't just sort of set up a web server. And we were actually hosted by a guy at Dartmouth College who set up a, a web server for us and started hosting Tidbits. And this is a guy, his name is Andy Affleck. He is still around and still working with us today. He's in fact, working on an update to his Take Control of Podcasting book. So, you I know- I mean, you meet people- <laughs> And you keep them forever. You can't get rid of them. <laughs> it's true. Some of the people in the very early days have, you know, I don't really talk to them much anymore. Um, Every now and then they pop up. But there there have been people who have done wonderful things for tidbits over the years. Early on, a guy named Mark Williamson at Rice University let us use Rice's Listserv software, which is a big, powerful mailing list software. And he actually did that after another guy at Simon Fraser University had set up a homebrew mailing list without telling the IT people at the university. And after they had a few thousand people on the list, uh, the IT department just totally threw a fit at him. He's like, what are you doing? I mean, this is back in the day when, you know, running a mailing list was a big deal even for a university. So, then as a Rice University was kind enough to host us until, again, about 1996, seven, somewhere in there, when we were able to use mailing list software running on a Macintosh called ListStar, written by Star9 and another company which is long gone and, uh, and it wasn't too much after that that again we also StarNet also had a, a a web server called uh, webstar and we were able to run our own mailing list and our own website use on a macintosh and, uh, using their software so that was pretty neat it was sort of nice to be able to take it over ourselves and have real full control over it much as we'd liked being able to have our have friends help us all along
0: so basically if we look at the history of this publication it very much follows the development of getting online, communicating with people with digital rather than print publications.
1: And in fact, one of the things that we haven't discussed, but was a really big deal back in those days, is online services. So, we all think about the internet now. We don't even think about groups like CompuServe and Apple Link, and, you know, they've all gone away. I mean, the closest you get to one of those big online services that's still around is AOL, America Online.
0: By the way, it's strange to think about that.
1: Yeah. That
0: AOL is still here. We think mostly of a web portal. It's a news site with lots of information, but at the core, there is still the online service and still a small number of people Who depend on AOL. Isn't that strange?
1: And I'm going to save a few people who are listening to this some money. If you still have an AOL.com email address and you just don't want to change it because it's your email address and everyone in the world knows it, but you're not doing dial-up to AOL, you can stop paying AOL money. You do not have to pay them for the email address anymore. And I just ran into someone a few months ago, who that was true of. And she was like, I can't believe I've been paying them, you know, 10 bucks a month or something for the last eight years because of this.
0: Yes, I agree with you. In fact, I have my AOL address from 1989. And I won't say what it is, except it's one of those that has somebody's name without the numbers. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I stopped paying for AOL. Early in the 90s, not because of that, but because AOL asked him to become a forum member. But in those days, you needed a custom service to get you online, and each of those services had their own sets of features. It wasn't like an ISP today where you get a connection, do what you want. There, you had to get a carefully controlled set of features. They weren't, in a sense, generic that anybody who went online we get the same thing. So CompuServe had this set of features, and AOL and AOL eventually bought CompuServe.
1: And there were a whole lot of them. There was Delphi, there was Bix, there was Genie, there was AppleLink, there was EWorld, and there was NiftyServe in Japan. And so all of these were kind of little walled gardens, and we had to upload tidbits to each one independently. And, you know, some, you know, at first, usually someone would do it for me, and then eventually, you know, they would get tired of it, but Tidbits was seen as a valuable thing, and so, the, you know, the, the people in charge would give me a free account. And so, I had this extremely complicated, I think it was QuickKeys at the time, macro, that would actually distribute Tidbits automatically to, like, five different online services, which, keep in mind, you had to dial up independently via your modem.
0: That's right. Each one had to be connected to separately. We've got Adam Inks to tidbits and take control books. More to come on the Tech Night Owl Live.
8: We are America's largest independently owned communications network, GCN.
9: Visit the Berkey guy at goberkey.com and be sure to click the red products on sale now button. You can always call toll free 877 886 3653. Again, that's 877 886 3653. Goberkey.com, home of the Berkey
10: guy. I will never forget the day my son Jeremy told me he hated me and slammed the door in my face. I'm behavioral therapist Janet Lehman. Behavior problems can turn the child you love and your life into a nightmare. That's why my husband James and I created the Total Transformation, the step-by-step program that shows you how to fix the worst behavior problems and get your child to respect and listen to you again. No matter what the behavior, defiance, backtalk, angry outbursts, disrespect, we can help you stop it. Now you can get the Total Transformation for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. You can keep it forever for free.
11: Limited number of free programs available. Call now. 1-888-912-1595. 1-888-912-1595. That's 1-888-912-1595. 1-888-912-1595.
6: There are many things the human body can do very well, but maintaining the proper pH level isn't always one of them. That's where AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops can make a world of difference. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops helps your body do what's natural. Just a few drops a day helps rid your body of harmful waste and acid while promoting health and restoring vibrance and energy. Alkalizing boosts your immune system and can help fight headaches, irritability, cramping, and insomnia. Alkalizing also helps the body fight depression and even bone loss. To learn. More more about the importance of alkalizing and how you can find life-changing and vital balance, please visit AlkaVision's brand new website at AlkaVision.com. Same great products, but now easier to use and more informative than ever before. To get your very own plasma pH drops for just $29.95, call 800-518-7615 or visit AlkaVision.com. That's A-L-K-A-Vision.com. Alkalize your body and supercharge your health at the new AlkaVision.com
12: live with gene steinberg it's the tech night owl because you never know what's going to
0: happen next so just saying 24 years of tidbits you think oh okay (laughs) But when you think about the things they were doing and discovering the new technologies online that we take for granted. Now, eWorld's an interesting story in and of itself because it goes back originally to Apple's first association with AOL. And that was they were working together to build something called Apple Links Personal Edition. Now, Apple Links was an online service from Apple for dealers and developers and everything and it cost $37 an hour to connect to. Right. And AOL was going to make a deal with Apple. It fell through. So <laughs> AOL or America Online came out separately by themselves for
1: $4 an hour. And Apple still wanted to have their own online service. And they they actually ended up Basing this on the AOL backend is my understanding, but it was completely different on the front end. They That's did right. got new graphics; it was actually very pretty, uh, and they called it EWorld. And it the problem with EWorld was that it was a new online service just as the internet was taking off, and it didn't stand a chance. The the writing was on the wall. I only, only once worked for Apple, and that was for about a week, when they asked me to write a white paper for them. On what the Apple Internet strategy was, and the joke among the people I was working working for was that once I was done, they'd have an Internet strategy. And if they just let me write what their Internet strategy had been, rather than telling you know telling me what they thought it was, they would have done better. But so I had to go down and talk to go down to Cupertino and talk to the E World people and all this and that and the other thing. And Apple was still flailing at that point. You know, they, they really had high hopes for eWorld and really didn't see the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall. And this is important,
0: even though we're talking about tidbits, it does mirror the growth of the internet. So let's kind of go back to that. What did Apple fail to see that they finally
1: realized was true about eWorld and why it wouldn't work? Apple's problem and what they are always struggling with is their need to exert control, they've done pretty well since, say, 2007 with the iPhone and all of that. But Apple was always trying to create situations where they could exert control over the entire setup. And that only works if the alternative is just nowhere near as good. And so, when the iPhone came out, even when the iPod and the iTunes store, all that, Apple would keep this very tight you know, circle around it all, where you couldn't really get outside of the Apple sphere of influence. That worked. But previously, when you had eWorld, one, it was competing against six or seven entrenched online services. The web at this point was three or four years old. So, there was starting to be a lot of good stuff showing up there. And it was clear that eWorld could never at least clear to me, could never compete against the internet because the internet was going to be infinite.
0: Now, around this time also, AOL tried to add internet-related features. So they had their own web browser. They had other clients relating to different functions of the internet, but still accessible from their network. But okay, so with eWorld, it basically was maybe a nice idea, maybe five years too late. Okay. Yeah,
1: pretty much. I mean, I think if, if eWorld had come out roughly at the same time that AOL had, it might have done very, very well. Because, I mean, if, Of course, at that yeah. point, if AOL
0: and Apple's deal had seen yeah. fruition.
1: Yeah, precisely. Because, I mean, what eWorld did really was was apply much nicer design and in, internet uh, sort of our information architecture to the existing metaphor of an online service. And so AOL was prettier than CompuServe and CompuServe was prettier than BIX, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these some of these things have been around for a long time and they were very, you know, text heavy and not at all graphical. And so they just kept getting better and better in that regard. And eWorld was sort of the culmination of that. Okay. So at what point did eWorld go, bye-bye? Oh man, I'd have to look that up. I they it lasted a few more years, but it' was clear that it was never going to be a force, and Apple at some point just shut it down. So, by that point, as I said, when you talk about the writing being on the wall, Apple had had this Apple Link service for a very long time. And Apple Link was really important because it, it, was, it was something that was used by all the Apple dealers. And keep in mind, this is before Apple stores. There were no Apple stores. So, there were Apple dealers throughout the country and throughout the world. And Apple Link was how you communicated with the mothership if you were an Apple dealer. And the same for developers. if you were a developer, you had to have an Apple link account to be able to talk to Apple's support people and engineers. And so Apple understood sort of the utility of these you know digital communications networks. They just weren't you know at the eworld point ready to make the jump fully to the Internet. And so, what happened, it's, you know, as it became clear that eWorld was not going to take off, Apple went heavily towards the internet. And I still have the t-shirt when they, they announced the, the Apple online store from, I think it was a Macworld New York. And that was a really big deal at the time because up to that point, you couldn't buy much on the internet particularly in terms of you know big you know computers i mean you couldn't buy a mac over the internet very easily and so for apple to open a really nice easy to use store that you know you could pick out your mac and pick out the options and have it shipped to you was a pretty big deal, and you know Dell had done this not too much before then, and was selling huge amounts and so it was really interesting to see Apple you know move into that space and you know and once once they saw the the success of that, they just went whole hog. Everything was internet
0: now, as I recall it, Apple bought power computing, one of the Mac cloners basically bought them to put them out of business. Yeah. And then use their online ordering system to build the Apple Online Store. Hmm. That's my understanding.
1: I, I would be surprised if that were true because the Apple Online Store was based on web objects, which was a Next technology. Right. And I so- don't,
0: but Next was – there were companies that used –
1: yeah, there were. So, I mean, I, I, it's possible. I, I hadn't heard that. But, you know, it, it's, I'd always assumed that it was one of those things that it was you know, a totally Apple-built thing because they had, by this time, obviously bought Next and were you know, had all of that expertise in-house. But, you know, it's entirely possible that power computing was doing the same thing. I mean, the clones were fascinating. Because for a long time Apple had had resisted any kind of licensing or whatnot. Finally, they start allowing clones, and they did it badly. You know, they really didn't do a good job. They basically created a situation where the clone companies, um, some of whom I liked quite quite a lot, Power Computing, in fact, good company, sure. APS, loved APS, uh, Motorola even did some decent stuff. That the clone companies went straight for the most profitable segments of the Mac market. You see, this is one of
0: the things (laughs) we didn't bet on. They were figuring, look, we have clone companies. And it had to be a monumentally stupid decision. And it had to be a monumentally stupid decision in the way the contracts are written. But they figured, look, we will reach more customers this way. And Instead, companies, especially power computing, looked at Apple's market, went after it with a vengeance, with lower-priced equipment... (laughs) With faster processors, because, you know, they come out with, say, a new G3 processor. And power computing didn't need as many as Apple did, so they'd buy them up and they'd start selling computers with these new processors, beating Apple at their own game. So when Steve Jobs came back to Apple and took over, he says, this is a mess. This is killing the company.
1: Yeah. But when they had had the initial idea that, oh, the clone companies would make really high-end machines or they'd make really low-cost machines, or so that they would basically fill the parts of the market that Apple didn't, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> it was a complete fiasco.
0: I would think there could have been some kind of marketing arrangement made in those contracts, but what do I know? We have Adaming of tidbits and Take Control of books. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night out Live) <laughs>
8: left, but always independent-minded. The Genesis Communications Network. GCN.
14: products from municipal water berkey water filter systems are even powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water for the gold standard in water filters get a big berkey at big berkey water and all gcn listeners get five percent off all ceramic filter systems for details call 1-877-99-BERKEY that's 877-99-BERKEY big berkey water filters for the love of clean water
15: Hi, Dr. Hurley here to give you information you may not want to hear. Approximately 70,000 chemicals are currently used and released into the environment in the United States each year. And 30 million kilograms of these toxic chemicals are known to cause cancer. And now the good news. Longevity's five-day cleansing program can drastically reduce the toxins in your body. For more information about the five-day cleanse, visit drhurley.net or call 855-315-8326. That's 855-315-8326. Hi, Dr. Lorraine Hurley here. Would you wait till you're dying of thirst before digging a well? Well, why wait until you're sick before getting the nutrients you need? Longevity's Healthy Start Pack has all the essential nutrients your body needs. The 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, and 2 fatty acids just aren't available in most people's diets. Your body needs these nutrients, and the Healthy Pack 2.0 has them all covered. Get your Healthy Body Pack by calling 855-315-8326. That's 855-315-8326. Or visit drhurley.net today.
12: You know what's going to happen next. Well, here's the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg.
0: Now, when you focus on the history of tidbits, you're looking not just on an online publication that started out as a hypercard stack. You're looking at the history of the internet. You're looking at the history of Apple because it all follows. Now, from early on, Tidbits had its emphasis on Apple Incorporated in terms of the content.
1: Yes, although it's kind of interesting because I think earlier on, in fact, we had a somewhat broader view because Apple was at the time, you know, sort of more in competition with Microsoft and the companies that made the big software, you know, WordPerfect, even even things like Lotus One Two Three, you know, there was a version of that. That these products would come out for the Mac, and so we had to pay attention to some of what was going on at these other companies in a big way. So, in the very first issue of Tidbits, for instance, Lotus and Novell were merging and that was a big deal even though neither of them were really related to apple. Lotus did 123, the first one of the biggest spreadsheets of all time, and Novell was a networking company. You know, so we we've always had a little bit of a view on the larger industry and we've also always had, you know, some an interest in the internet as its own thing. So although yeah, we're apple focused we will often step away from that focus if we think the reason is interesting enough. All right, let's
0: look at how that's changed. Today, is it still mostly Apple plus companies that have related products?
1: Yes, it is, although we try to pay attention to, again, certain kinds of competition. So, for instance, we just ran reviews of Microsoft's Surface Tablets and of Google's Chromebooks. And it's not so much that, oh, they interact with the Mac cause they don't. It's that they're some of the alternative visions. So Apple's vision is MacBooks and iPads and iPhones. Uh, but Google and Microsoft have different visions and they're not necessarily right or wrong. It's just a different way of looking at the world. And we think it's important that people understand that there are different ways of looking at the world, that Apple is not the only way, because Apple, for all the things they do right, they do many things wrong as well, and, or, and even not right or wrong, there are simply other good ideas out there, and we want to make sure that there's some sense of uh, acknowledging of that.
0: Now, in the stories you've written over the years, you and your staff at Tidbits over 24 years, what do you think are some of the top the highlights, the things maybe you really broke the news on this story?
1: Boy, it's an interesting question. I I would have to go back and 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 look because for the most part, we are not well, let me say this two ways. When we first started one of the points of tidbits was that we could be faster than the weeklies because these these mac weeks and pc weeks and infoworlds they had to print and mail So, we had, you know, three or four days of of extra time on any news event that happened. And so, we were the fastest back then. But as soon as the internet became the primary distribution mechanism for a whole lot of news and publication, news companies and publications of various sorts, we stopped being able to compete on speed. The reason for that was largely that tidbits has always remained small. We've never had a big staff. It's always been somewhere between one and four or five people who are doing most of the most of the writing at all times. And we have avoided you know we, we saw that basically going for being first was a game we could never win at because there were always going to be other people who were going to be even awake at that particular time zone hour such that we we wouldn't be. You know, that um, uh, a woman who used to work for Macworld was laid off recently, now working for, I think it's The Next Web, one of the big web publications. And she said, they have a 24-hour business. There is always someone online watching what's happening. And that's kind of nuts. <laughs> no offense, that's crazy. And so we... You know, since the internet has become a big thing, we have, have always opted for not being first, but trying to tease out what's important about a story, what what is practical for the people reading the story to do surrounding it, that kind of thing. So, perfect example, the heart bleed bug that was in the news all over the place last week where potentially half a million websites needed to upgrade their software because they were vulnerable to a very, very bad security vulnerability. We were nowhere near first on the coverage of that. But what we did is we sat down and we said, okay, you're not a system administrator. You don't run a website. What do you need to know? You know, we're not writing for dummies. We're not, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna dumb this down, but we do believe that people can't understand this stuff as long as it's, it's couched in an appropriately, an appropriately technical level. So you know, you're, you're a user, you, you use the internet every day maybe, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily know about SSL TLS certificates and blah, 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 blah. So we're going to try to tell you what you need to know and what you need to do. All right, the OpenSSL bug,
0: we talked about it for a couple of segments on last week's show. In the end, was anyone actually impacted by it? <laughs> I mean, were physical people hurt? Did they lose their passwords to internet hackers or did we catch it and fix it for the most part before people understood what it was?
1: The problem is there's no way to know. That was the, the real kicker about Heartbleed was that the way it was exploited left no traces. So, my belief is that it was probably not exploited much. Probably it was a little bit, but not much. And the reason is because online criminals are not going to sit on that information because it's going to change. If you've stolen someone's username and password or their credit card number or something like that, you're going to want to use it while it's still likely to be good. And so, I don't, I haven't heard of any significant break-ins or the like that have been happened in in you know since since Heartbleed became public I have heard from a lot of companies who have said we were vulnerable but we fixed it and we have no indication that anything's gone wrong. So you should change your password but you know they don't know that anything's wrong. And the on the flip side however if you want to think about, say, the NSA or GHCQ or other governmental intelligence agencies throughout the world, they, on the other hand, are playing the long game. So if they had had access to that information, they'd be happy to just hoover it up and sit on it. Not tell you exactly what's going on. Hmm? Precisely. So w- that's what we don't know. Um, we don't know, you know, there's, there's con- there are conflicting reports as to whether the NSA knew about this before anyone else. Um, Some sources say yes, the White House denies it. Of course, you know, like they're going to confirm, you know, duh, they're not going to say that. So, who knows? And, And even if the NSA didn't, maybe China did, maybe Russia did. You know, there are a lot of very, very smart people out there constantly looking for these kinds of vulnerabilities. And if it was a government that found it, they would be exploiting it to gather intelligence information in bulk. And they would not be telling you about this. And they would not tell anyone ever.
0: (laughs) So you can kind of assume that probably it was, but you don't know.
1: Now, just to
0: clarify things for listeners who might wonder, the SSL bug that impacted iOS and OS X, that was a different problem, strictly an Apple problem.
1: That was a different problem, and that, we believe, was simply... I mean, almost a typo that it was an extra line in the code that caused one appropriate check of security stuff to fail silently. And once it, was, once it was identified, Apple fixed it, problem solved. But this, the Heartbleed thing, because it was in a piece of open source software that was used by hundreds of thousands of websites, was very, very widespread.
0: Well, I know I got assurances from the people who handle our web servers that we were not impacted. But I did check. We're going to check this out. We have Adam Inks of Tidbits and Take Control Books. We're talking about the history of Tidbits and following the history of the internet. More to come on the Tech Night Out Live.
8: Independently leading the way for the nation, compelling talk for every political persuasion. We are GCN.
16: If you own a business, you need customers, right? Well, your potential customers are listening to this radio program right now, and I can help you reach them. Hi, I'm Matt Brower, a national marketing executive at the radio network responsible for this program. I can help you customize a national radio campaign that fits your budget, large or small, while targeting your specific audience. Contact me to learn how radio advertising can make your business more profitable. M-B-R-O-W-E-R at GCNlive.com. That's M-B-R-O-W-E-R at GCNlive.com.
18: It's hard to imagine when things are going reasonably well, just how quickly things can change. But what would it take? Economic collapse? Massive crop failure? Chemical or biological attack? So many situations could find you in the grocery looking to pick up food for your family only to find that the shelves are empty. There's nothing. Don't let that happen act today to make sure that if it ever comes to that, you and your family will be provided for. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com to look at the wide variety of survival foods available. Freeze-dried foods from the Freeze-Dry Guy store longer, rehydrate faster, are nutritionally superior to, and taste better than any other long-term storage food available. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com or call toll-free 866-
7: 404-365 663 dot. Welcome back to the Tech Night Owl Live where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
0: We have Adam Ings of Tidbits and Take Control Books. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Let's look at this other aspect of the history of Tidbits. You were one of the early publishers of electronic
1: books. Yes. (laughs) How did you get into that game? Well, publishing is one of those fields where there are a lot of different segments. So, book publishers, for the most part, don't interact with magazine publishers. And even after the internet became a big deal, internet publishing was yet another way of doing it. However, we had the good fortune through our connections with MacUser and MacWorld and MacWeek at the magazine level. And then at the book level, writing Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh and many other books. And then with Tidbits, we do internet publishing. So, we knew all three of these Different approaches. And they really are very, very different. So, you know, magazines get by on either advertising, well, actually, they all get by on advertising. Uh, some of them need subscriptions as well. Books are almost always, you know, sold directly but through middlemen. And then internet stuff tends to be free but also be sold directly or to go directly to the customer. There's no middlemen. And so back in 2003, Tanya was uh, kind of coming back into the workforce mode after our son was turned three or so, three or four, and she were, we were just kept talking about like what to do next, and we were kind of frustrated with some of the things that were going on. You know, we didn't we weren't seeing tidbits as scaling to for the business model because there's just sort of only so many advertisers you can get in a small weekly newsletter, and we didn't really have anything we could sell, and we thought maybe it'd be interesting to do books, not big, long books, because this is back in the day when you'd have these thousand-page tomes, but short, focused books. And we could do them electronically, and we could use all of the skills that we had in terms of building websites and making mailing lists and all of that to just rethink the model. The other side of it also that we knew about from, again, having been in this world, was we knew how authors were treated, which is frankly not that well. Well, I was one of those authors, so I know about that. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, it's such a big thing to be able to write a book that people agree to these deals that are just terrible. And it's fine if you have a day job, then you're not going to quit your day job, and you get a book out the other end, and you're really happy with it. And even if it doesn't earn a ton of money, that's fine. But if you want to be a full-time author, that's really hard. Let me tell you something about that. It's very interesting
0: about these publishers. I wrote books of some of the major publishers, probably some of the people that you dealt with. And In each case, they would give you an advance, a payment against royalties, and you would usually get it in segments. As you completed some of the manuscript, you get payment, say, 30 days later. But at the end of the day, they had down to a science. They knew how many books would sell, and they knew that the royalty they gave you was close to that, so you very seldom earned out. Earning out means, of course, that the royalties due you are higher than your advance, you actually begin to make money.
1: Yes, and that was, I think, one of the real problems that people would would, would get is that you sort of get this, what seemed like a big deal. Oh, I'm going to get $10,000 advance, and it seems like a lot of money, but- when it takes you six months to write a book or more, and obviously, back in the day, you had a little bit more time because software didn't rev quite as quickly, but if it takes you six months to write a book and it's parceled out, suddenly, when you start looking at it, you think, well, geez, you know, if I was going to be living on this, it would be nowhere near minimum wage, and, and you're right, that, that the publishers really do have a pretty good idea of how many books they can sell. And even something that people often didn't realize was the publishers will print X thousand copies, and they'll send them out to bookstores. But if they don't sell, you know what the bookstores do? They send them back. They've already bought them, and they send the books back, so they get credit, they get refunded for them. But then the author has to then eat that money in the returns. The returns actually come off the next thing. So it just it was one of those deals where if you had a bestseller, you could do pretty well. And you know for me, Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh was a huge bestseller. No book I ever wrote after that, you know, did a tenth as well. So what we were trying to do when we sat down and started looking at how we were going to rethink this model is we said, look, this is crazy. Authors at best get 20%. And that's if they do, you know, a vast amount more of the work that the publisher normally does. Mostly, the authors get ten percent, and that's ten percent of what the bookstores pay. So, which is half the cover price. So, so therefore,
0: you're getting five percent.
1: Well, yeah, That's one way to look at it. So, but say a thirty-dollar book, and the bookstore buys it for fifteen dollars. The author gets ten percent. That's a buck fifty. So, you're getting a buck fifty for each book. Now we come along and we say, this is nuts. You know, the author is clearly the most important person here after the publisher, because we're the publisher, so we've got to be up there, too. Um, and so, you know, the book doesn't exist without the author. What do you say we just split it down the middle? And we decided we're not going to even do advances. That if we don't do advances, then it's a complete situation where we're sharing the risk and we're sharing the rewards. So, authors for the most part, have really, really liked that. And to give you an idea, if we sell one of our books for uh, $15 after transaction fees, because we, we all share those, you know, there's sort of no way around those, then the author earns about almost $7 a book. So $1.50 versus $7, and the book costs half as much. It's kind of crazy, but the numbers really work. And we don't sell as many copies because we're selling directly to our customers rather than through a bunch of resellers. We do the resellers too, but one of the myths is that if you get a book in Amazon that it will become a bestseller. Amazon carries every book, so you know, most clearly they can't all be bestsellers. And so you know, we may sell only you know, a couple thousand uh, copies of a book, but that's not that much less than most of the print publishers And authors are earning a good amount more money. So everyone, well, at least in our model, everyone's happy. (laughs) No, this
0: is an interesting way to do it. Of course, part of the reason that you can get away with that marketing scheme is because there are no printing and publishing expenses involved. It's just electronic. This is not to say that you don't actually have
1: hard copy versions available. Well, we actually don't much anymore. Okay, you did for a while. We, for for a while we had a print on demand service so if you wanted a printed copy you could but they went out of business and it was we, just not that many people used it so our books are really designed to be read on a Mac on an iPad on an iPhone and people do that people are happy with that so you know the no, the number of people who want print books in, in this world is relatively small now there is one other really key factor, which is the only reason Take Control worked is because we had the Tidbits audience. So, when we announced our first book, Take Control of Upgrading to Panther, back in October of 2003, we were able to tell the entire Tidbits audience of uh, 50,000 people, or whatever it was then, of about that book. And that was absolutely key, because If you write a book and you can't tell anyone about it, it's not going to sell. Indeed, that's
0: part of the problem that you have with a lot of these computer books. Most of them are just put on the store shelves. They're part of a series that they suppose people become used to the brand name. Whatever, if you're not one of those top two or three authors, and I got close before I gave it up, they will spend absolutely nothing to promote you. But that's true with any book, really. And that's how the publishing industry works. I have friends who write books about the paranormal, about UFOs and things like that. And people say, by God, they're writing all these books. They must be making incredible amounts of money. <laughs> well, it happens. I know the money and how things go in that business. And if these people make two to $4,000 for spending a year or two to write a book, they're lucky. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, it's it's like so many other fields, you know, app app developers, you know. Some some guy in Hong Kong writes flappy birds and is making fifty thousand dollars a day. Well that's news. That's even but more news
0: about the fact that the guy decided to give it up. <laughs> but I have to ask you about that in a moment in our final segment with Adam Inkst. I'm Gene Steinberg you're in the Tech Night How Live. <laughs>
19: This is Bill Brown, Midas Resources, gold and silver, government shutdown, inept politicians, unfunded entitlements, looming Obamacare, the death of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency is what nobody wants to acknowledge. We have a debt bubble that cannot be paid and will eventually crash the dollar. If you are concerned about maintaining your purchasing power, consider this. Gold and silver are up 497% in 13 years. Call me, 800-686-2237, extension 332. Together we can discuss your options of buying gold and silver. Analysts agree the dollar's problems are increasing. Call me, Bill Brown, 800-686-2237 at extension 332, and we'll discuss your option of buying precious metals. Also, I can send you information on how you can roll over your IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA. Don't get caught with money in your account when the dollar collapses. Call me, Bill Brown, at Midas Resources, 1-800-686-2237, extension 332.
20: Mother's Day is right around the corner. If you haven't ordered your Mother's Day flowers yet, make sure to visit ProFlowers.com for an amazing deal. ProFlowers has a Mother's Day special for radio listeners. Get 100 gorgeous blooms for mom with a free glass vase for $19.99. And if you want to make her day even more special upgrade to a premium base, and add gourmet chocolates for just $9.99 more. Mom will be so happy when she unwraps her beautiful bouquet of blooms, guaranteed to stay fresh and beautiful for at least one full week. Each time she looks at her Mother's Day flowers, she'll think of you. But hurry, this deal expires soon, so make sure to place your order today. The only way to get this incredible deal is to go to proflowers.com slash radio right now. And enter the code PLOW, P-L-O-W, proflovers.com, slash radio, code PLOW, P-L-O-W. That's proflovers.com, slash radio, and enter code PLOW, P-L-O-W.
6: If you're worried about your health and you're tired of the nasty side effects of harsh drugs or antibiotics, then look no further. Supernatural Silver is the answer. Supernatural Silver is a powerful immune system enhancer that can be used every day to help keep you healthy and well with none of those nasty side effects. It's extremely safe for use internally as well as topically. And Supernatural Silver is hundreds of times more effective than colloidal or ionic silver. It is perfect for use in the sinuses, eyes, ears, and on any wound or skin issue. Supernatural Silver is also extremely effective when taken orally and can help fight off bacteria, viruses, and mold that may be overwhelming your immune system. Go to SupernaturalSilver.com SupernaturalSilver.com And use the promo code silver. 2014 for 20% off of your entire order and give yourself and your loved ones a fighting chance with Supernatural Silver.
7: We'd like to hear from you. If you have any thoughts or comments about the Tech Night Owl Live, please get in touch at news at Tech Night Owl.com. That's news at Tech Looking for past episodes? We've got hundreds at Tech slash radio. That's Tech Night Owl.com slash
0: radio. Or subscribe on iTunes. So the guy is making 50000 bucks a day from this product, Adam Ingst. Now, if I were making 50000 bucks a day from any product and it was legal, <laughs> and I didn't have to do anything except, you know, keep it kind of up to date every so often. I could sit back and count my money. Why would I say give it up? Why would I say pull it? You know, I don't
1: know. That's
0: what <laughs>
21: happened.
1: You know, clearly he felt that he was not contributing to the world in a useful way and he had to stop. You know, he had never intended Flappy Birds to become what it was, which was this huge hit, even though it was kind of a stupid, terrible game. You know, it just caught attention for some reason. After being in the App Store for, what was 11 months or something? I mean, it wasn't a new game. So, it's possible that he was just you know, mortified that he was kind of the responsible for this horrible thing taking so much of the world's time. You know, I can't say that I would have made the same decision, but e- there's, a, there's a little way that I can understand it.
0: I don't understand it at all, but that's just me. I think it's kind of wacky. Didn't that fellow make a decision to put it back?
1: Or I, am I, I missing that? I don't think so, but I haven't kept up with it. So, what my point was, though, we're getting back to book authors, this guy's making 50 grand a day. Even if he does shut it down after a while, he still made, you know, half a million dollars or whatever. Whereas the majority of app developers in the app store are selling two or three copies a day. They're making, you know, five bucks a day or 10 bucks a day. And that's the kind of business where you'd better have a day job because you are not going to be living on that. And, you know, Apple doesn't say a lot about that. Apple says, oh, look at how many billions of dollars we've distributed to developers. Well, yes. But when you actually look at the graph of how that money is distributed, a small number get the bulk of it and most people get diddly divided by squat.
0: Sounds like the way income is distributed amongst people. Eh, Pretty much. (laughs) Okay, so if you want to become rich and famous at the App Store, you have to have 100 titles out.
1: Yeah, well, I won't say famous, but certainly if you want to do well, that is one of the standard approaches. If you can get 100 titles out there and each of them earns 10 bucks a day, 10 times 100 is $1,000 a day. That's not too bad.
0: It's a decent income. It's not spectacular. It's what they call upper middle. But it's Okay. I could live with it. Let's get back those Let's get back to the way the books are going, okay, so you made it possible for authors who worked at the computer book factories to actually make a living from plying that trade. Okay, Have you influenced other publishers?
1: I think we have, although I don't know I don't know how much of what they have done was because we did it or because like so many other things in the world, it was time for that to happen. So, Peach Pit, O'Reilly, those are sort of our, I won't say closest competitors because we're friends with them and partners with them in various times and places too, but you know, they publish the same kinds of things we do, and they have gotten much more into ebooks. They do some of the same kinds of things we do with updates and different formats and all of that. But I will say that I do think that they do not, they still don't take it as far as we do because we're ebook first and ebook only. So everything we do is predicated on making the best possible ebook, whereas the bulk of their money is still coming from. Print books, and they have to they always have to keep that in mind even as they do new things. And they do lots of great new things related to ebooks, some of which i'm I'm a little jealous of. I mean say O'Reilly has this cool thing with books, ebooks you buy from them, you can get in your Dropbox. And yeah, at some point I'd like to do that for our stuff. That's kind of neat. But the, you know, on the whole, I think we still have some, some interesting things to show off because we focus so hard on the electronic aspects of it.
0: But you've done something here that reflects the future, just like you did with Tidbits, where you look at the future of computing, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's mostly you wanted to bring out this publication. You look at the best ways to do it. But you basically got in on the internet ride early on. Yes. And now with ebooks, you've kind of done the same thing because obviously ebooks are very big now. Maybe they don't market it the way you do, not as personal as you are, where basically the publisher and the author are sharing income, which is to a way that is very unique. I know of one print publisher who does that, who I talked to him about a book, and he said, you know what? We're not going to give you an advance, but you keep half, we keep half. How's that? And I said, "Ooh, okay, maybe he knows you. I don't know, but
1: it is interesting." And I think you know when I look at some of the publishing contracts, and I just talked to someone yesterday, in fact, who was writing, going to write a book for a, a well-known publisher who shall remain nameless, and he was being offered a four thousand dollars advance and a ten percent royalty. And I thought, "Wow, nothing's changed." You know, And if we were giving people 10% royalties, we'd be swimming in it, let me tell you, you know, that if we were keeping that extra 40%. But at the same time, I don't think you can get the good authors that way because you, we want people like Joe Kissel who just – Joe is so good. I feel like when I'm editing one of Joe's books, I have to make some comments and changes as I go so that it's clear that I did something because he writes so cleanly and so well, and it's so well thought out. Those are the people that we really, really love to work with. You know, if you're not paying very well, you're going to get the people who it's their first book, and they're, frankly, just not that good yet. But
0: even when you're an experienced author, you're getting those low prices. Precisely. And the $4,000, 10% royalties, I thought, that's the first book I wrote back in, what, 1993, (laughs) 1994, 20 years ago. I wrote a book and that was what I got. And I thought, hey, that's not bad. You know, it was something I really churned out pretty fast. It was a book called Using AOL, (laughs) believe it or not. Okay. And it did, by the way, earn out and I made modest royalties from it. So I can't complain. But the point being, you think after 20 years, they deserve a raise.
1: Well, and that's actually one of the problems with the publishing industry, and we've seen this in both print, or sorry, book publishing and magazine publishing. Back in the day, when you were getting started and when I was getting started, it was commonplace for your average computer book to sell about twelve thousand copies. Whereas now, or I shouldn't say now, because my numbers are actually a little old, uh, it had you know last I checked, it had dropped to about five thousand copies.
0: That makes sense, but we have to wrap
1: up now. Tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff, Adam (laughs) Ingst. Well, they can go to tidbits.com, and I will have an article up about our 24 years, and I would actually encourage people to look at that because I link back in it to all of our previous anniversary articles, which is almost a book-length history of, gosh, a whole lot of stuff.
0: Who could have thunk it? We'll have to have him back 24 years from now to talk shop. If I'm still around, because (laughs) Because you see I'm an old codger. When I was young. (laughs) Yes. Adam Inks, thanks for joining us on the Tech Night Out Live. Anytime, Gene.
8: Minds think alive. The network for the independent minded. The Genesis Communications Network.
0: GCN. Neighbors, are you tired of dealing with a slow web hosting provider? Well, check out A2 Hosting and their screaming fast Swift server platform. They even have SSDs that load pages 300% faster than the competition. Ready to give your site a speed boost? Well, tell you what neighbors, head on over to a2hosting.com. That's a2, that's number 2, a2hosting.com. Check out their prime hosting account and get this neighbors, they're even giving you an exclusive 25% off discount for all our listeners. 25% And remember, their Guru Crew support team is standing by 24-7, 365 days a year to answer any of your questions. Now, to get the discount, use the coupon code Gene when you check out.
22: system today, complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey Guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey Guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only thirty-nine ninety-nine. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey Guy at one eight seven seven eight eight six three six five three. 886 3653 That's one 886 3653 Or order online at GoBerkey.com That's GoBerkey.com today.
5: Question: Could too many GMO foods and toxins be overloading your digestive and immune systems? Answer: Yes. If you're searching for a powerful detox that's gentle enough to use every day, use Pro-EM-1 from Terragonics. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic that uses good bacteria to suppress pathogens and gently eliminate toxins from your body. A healthy digestive system will cleanse and remove toxins, support weight loss, improve absorption of food nutrients, and aid in controlling yeast and other infections. Pro-EM-1 is made with only non-GMO and certified organic ingredients, has no preservatives, and is dairy, soy, wheat, and gluten-free. Pro-EM-1 is the key to your digestive health. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terragonics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Also available through Amazon Prime. Pro-EM-1 from Terraganics. Life's getting better. What's going to happen next?
12: You never know when you're listening to The Tech Night Owl, live with Gene Steinberg.
0: We have Daniel Aaron Dilger of Roughly Drafted Magazine and AppleInsider.com. And this week, unaccountably, I guess, or very strangely, Apple confounded the skeptics and earned more money than even they expected what went right
24: well i think what what really shifted wasn't that apple did something different but that perception changed a lot of what people a lot of what analysts are describing about apple is kind of coached by expectations that um are either myopic and that they only look at a couple detailed numbers and, and make come up with ideas that in retrospect, if you look at what they said in the past, are not realistic or correct on any level. And in other cases, they want things to happen a certain way. And uh, when that doesn't happen, they've kind of turned around and punished them. So, for example, just the first quarter, last three months ago, Apple came out with record earnings. And instead of saying, hey, we like this and we're concerned about that, there was this huge... Concern that um, Apple's guidance going forward wasn't high enough, this one number that it tanked Apple stock by 8% over a week. I mean, that's irrational. It went, went down for a week. So people had to figure out, they had to kind of come to their senses and then it sort of balanced out. And this case was kind of the opposite way, where Apple again reported good numbers and the stock went up
0: 8%. So basically, they look for little crumbs. Well, I mean, a big pile of sand to see whether there's something wrong
24: well everyone's trying to uh, kind of coach out some interesting taker or be able to understand what's happening that's what everyone's doing that's what I do when I look at the numbers but I think there's a, a lot of there's a lot of people that come at Apple familiar with how everybody else does things and not really understanding why Apple's successful and that's that kind of made sense over, you know, the whole like Windows PC era, Apple was doing something that was different than every other PC maker. And it wasn't obviously better because throughout most of the 90s, Apple was doing much worse than everyone else. And even in the 2000s, Apple was doing better, but it wasn't obviously doing remarkably better. And over the last several years, there's just really no doubt that Apple is just inhaling all the profits in the mobile industry. And in the PC industry, like everywhere Apple operates, they're just taking all of the money away. And you don't you don't get that when you read about analyst coverage of Apple. What you get is this sort of sense that oh, Apple has to have be maintaining these certain volumes of products. They're basically saying Apple should be more like Samsung, but Samsung has severe problems. All the all the problems that we can talk about Apple having uh, Samsung has them as well. And analysts know that and investors realize that. And uh, Samsung stock is down worse than Apple's is. Um, their stock is down. They also have problems with margins and they have uh, sales that they're not excited about talking about. So to give Apple advice that it should be more like Samsung is quite obviously wrong because Samsung is doing worse than Apple selling v- a lot more phones most of them are are cheap things but they're selling a lot more phones they're doing the things that analysts are telling apple that it should be doing and the results are not as nearly as good as apple so uh, i always have a problem understanding i I keep thinking about sports you know you're watching an athlete perform incredibly you wouldn't think that people would say oh well we we expected they were going to actually do this and what they should really do is, is be more like this other athlete that's not doing as well. I I have a hard time understanding a lot of the advice given to Apple.
0: Well, in the wake of Apple's various decisions and announcements, the stock price went up incredibly the very next day, not so much the day after. But they announced, for example, the 7 to 1 stock split and a larger stock buyback. Now, is that by and large, mostly money games. Um, well, there's a couple of different things you mentioned there. The, the buyback
24: is important because it's, it's Apple using its capital to remove shares from the market. You can think of it as being the opposite of an IPO. When a company desperately needs money and their ability, and they have ideas that they think can put in place, they, they give, They have an IPO and they distribute shares for money so that they get money and they're giving away fractional ownership in their company. So a buyback is kind of the opposite of that. Apple has so much money that it doesn't need to have. uh, It's not selling to investors to get money. It's really taking shares off the market because the more shares that are outstanding, the less each one of them is going to be worth. And Apple is, is, is creating shares. That's part of the, how Apple retains and attracts talent is to give people, give employees and executives shares of Apple or options to buy shares. And because they keep creating more and more shares, eventually the share price is going to go down. Just you know, printing money creates inflation. So the part of the offset to that, and Apple originally described it as an offset, is they're taking their capital and buying their own shares with it so that they're not um they're removing this dilution dilution effect
0: now the stocks now the stock split i guess one advantage people see in that is that smaller investors can buy stock in apple they don't have to spend 550 dollars a share they get it for one seventh that price
24: yes and there's no difference it's it's very much like the idea of you know a dollar or ten dimes it's the same amount of money so if you have 100 shares, and then the stock splits, and you have 700 shares, you still have the same amount of Apple, it's still worth the same amount. But perceptually, like you're saying, it's it's a lot of investors, a lot, of, especially a lot of individual investors, like the idea of having, you know, thinking of themselves as having a significant number of shares. So instead of, you know, instead of buying one stock, that's $500, you can have, you know, seven stocks that are worth or you know, seven shares that are worth a seventh of that. Um, but the other thing is it also allows an investor to buy a number of shares and then sell off a portion of them. So in that sense, it is like having change. You know, if you're putting money in the parking meter, you may not want to put a whole dollar in. You may want to put a little bit in. If you have change, you can do that. If you have just, just one dollar coin, you can't. And so some of the thinking is um, it will make it more attractive to individual investors. There's also the idea floated that um, Apple could be added to the Dow stock index, which couldn't happen if their stock was that high because it's weighted.
0: Now, the thing to bear in mind too here is that at $550 a share, if you do a seven to one stock split, the price becomes $78 and 57 cents. So makes it easier for people to do it. Now, in terms of, apple and the dow i was looking the other day now apple grossed over 45 billion dollars for the last quarter general motors grossed over 37 billion dollars so apple made a lot more money than general motors so certainly that itself should almost earn apple a spot on the dow
24: yeah apple is definitely an important part of the economy if you look at what's happening you know the nasdaq is often, often a reflection of what apple's doing but um in addition to individual investors, you know, making it affordable, there's also a lot of mutual funds and, you know, other kind of financial instruments that for some reason um, have made rules about how expensive the stocks that they have in their portfolio can be. And if it's, uh, there's some that's, you know, if it's at more than a hundred dollars, they can't, they can't invest in that. Um, so making, s- splitting the stock, which Apple has done before, usually it's two for one, but Here, they did it seven for one just because the stock price is so high. Brings Apple stock price back down to a point where it's uh, below $100 in line with a lot of other stocks that are part of
0: mutual funds and things like that. So in the end, the stock price may go up even further because it's less. You know, we'll get more information on that and how that might work out. We have Daniel Aaron Dilger of Roughly Drafted Magazine and appleinsider.com. Far more to come, I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live.
8: Not just an alternative to the mainstream media. We're the premier independent talk radio network. We are GCN.
11: Limited number of free programs available. Call now. 1-888-912-1595. 1-888-912-1595. That's one 888 912 912 1595
21: A little over a year ago, I began to do a lot of research into why, even though I had a pretty good-sized meal, that I was still starving. You never know
12: what's going to happen next while listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg.
0: Here on the Tech Night Owl live, Daniel Aaron Dilger of AppleInsider.com. We were talking about Apple's financials doing better than expected, about the stock split. And I was posing some scenarios there that maybe you want to comment on before we move on. So I was mentioning here, of course, about the fact that by lowering the stock price, making it more affordable, ultimately it raises the stock price because more people buy it.
24: Well, if there's, if there's greater demand, then the, there's a lot of people who, who hold the stock who are kind of waiting for it to get to a certain point or are holding it long term. And those people don't really have a huge impact on what the stock price is. Unless it goes down to a certain and then they may want to sell. I mean, they may want to sell. As if they see that it's going down, they may want to sell before it goes down too much more. Um, but I mean, I think the, the people who really change the stock price, because the stock price is, is based on who's selling right now. So if there's a small number of people who are interested in putting their capital into Apple as opposed to some other investment, That creates a trend that drives tends to drive the price upward. If that's not the case, then and it's it's also easier to manipulate the stock because um one person driving orders can conceptually um help drive the stock up or down or whatever they wanted to do to, to create things that they can take advantage of. So making it broadly broadly attractive to a large number of people just increases the size of the market and i think it has an effect on um kind of reigning in speculation and manipulation in the stock because you can't set up scenarios that you can take advantage of if there's a huge market and there's ready capital interested in in putting it into apple it's harder to drive the stock down dramatically if you have a lot of people that are ready to buy it at that price
0: okay Very key issue in Apple's financials is, even though more iPhones were sold than expected, more Macs were sold than expected, iPad sales were down, but how much down depends on how you calculate it because there's a bit of inventory control mumbo-jumbo that Tim Cook was talking about. Can you explain this?
24: Well, specifically, he drew attention to um sell in and sell out so you can apple reports how many ipads they sold but going on at the same time is inventory restocking so when apple pushes a product out or when they have a new product when they're building or the ramping up build of a new product um there's a wave of, of um there's there's inventory that stocks a channel that goes into the channel before it's sold and um Sales come out of that. So in the the previous quarter, uh, they were noting that there was a buildup of the iPad mini retina display, I believe, that wasn't shipped in the December quarter and was delayed into the March quarter.
0: Evidently, they were somewhat late in getting full quantities of that model into the channel.
24: Yeah, so instead instead of the kind of typical ramp of inventory happening in the December quarter when they're being sold... They entered into the quarter last year with a deficit of inventory. Shelves that needed to be stocked and they were being stocked in the first, in the first calendar quarter, which is Apple's Q2. This year that didn't happen. So there wasn't a, a huge influx of new shipments coming in. And so that makes it look like Apple sold a lot more last year than they did this year. But that just isn't, isn't really the case. If you, if you balance out the changing inventory, it was a difference of like 3% instead of a difference of, I think it's 16 or 18%. So it was not a significant um, change in the, in the demand from customers. And at the same time, um, Apple's iPads and Apple, all of Apple's products are very cyclical. They, they have kind of come out with new models, especially consumer models that come out in the holiday season when Apple's selling the most. It makes sense for Apple.
0: Well, the other thing to bear in mind with an iPad, it's not like a smartphone where your contract is up, you buy a new one every two years. There's nothing to constrain you from just keeping your old iPad, except for the fact that it may not run on newer operating systems and won't deliver as fast performance on some apps. But it still has a longer useful life in the real world because it's not tied to carrier contracts.
24: Yeah, uh, iPads are sold more like Macs. I mean, they're computers. Um, and so people, there's some people that re- do replace on a regular basis. or some people that buy it and hold it for a longer period of time, but it's still cyclical in the, in the sense that the same reason that Macs are cyclical and that they come out with a new model. There's a big rush to get it when it first comes out and then sales start to trickle off as people sort of anticipate increasingly the next model to come out and um, Apple cycle, it continually has some change to it. So if you, if you, Strict on Apple's numbers and try to analyze them by looking at this month compared to the year-ago quarter. You have to also take into consideration the fact that things are changing. Sometimes products are launched before or after others. Sometimes a quarter is longer or shorter than than another year. Um, there's a lot of factors that are that are involved. Sometimes Apple, like we're talking about, there's a, a rampant inventory that's delayed. So it's kind of it's kind of simplistic to just look at a, a quarter's numbers and compare them, even between Apple, because Apple's factors are changing. And particularly if you compare them with other companies. It used to be every year people would talk about how the iPhone was dying in the first quarter because um, the percentage of Android phones or, or competitors' phones were doing better. Well, that's because Apple just sold all their phones. And, you know, there's like this waiting lull period in the late spring and early summer when, you know, that's the low point of Apple sales. So if you compare that against Android, it's gonna be more favorable than if you compare it in the winter when Apple is just blowing out most of their sales because they've just released new models. So that's something else you have to take into consideration when you're comparing Apple against its own performance or with performance of other companies. If you back up and look at things on a longer scale, it's, you don't see those kind of things.
0: Now there's an interesting thing here that came out. And that's something that you pointed out in a document from the Apple versus Samsung trial in Northern California, where a couple of three years back, Samsung was reporting what sales of one of their galaxy note tablets at over 2 million when they really sold less than a million. And that was available. That information in one of those documents, it proved that Samsung was lying about sales.
24: Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why they don't say anything about sales is because, you know, if you're, if you're a regulated company and you come out and say something, it has to be true. (laughs) It's supposed to be true. Um, so I think, I think it was the end of 2010 when they first came out with the Galaxy Tab and they launched it and there was a whole bunch, remember Steve Jobs mentioned the avalanche of tablets that were coming and he said he, w- he didn't really think any of them were much cause for concern. And yet market research groups seized upon this, this idea that Samsung said it had shipped a million tablets and then it said it sold 2 million tablets over, you know, over the winter. They're just giving out these numbers. And there, it was kind of numbers similar to PlayStation Xbox numbers that they come out with that kind of sounded like, oh, this is how many they're actually selling to consumers. And it's like, no, this is how many they're shipping to the channel. And they later sort of backtracked and they gave some kind of Weasley language uh, to their investors in, in conference calls when they said, what is this? And they said, oh, we actually said that it was quite, quite smooth sales. It's, it's really not controversial that the galaxy tab bombed it came out it did not sell well and even today they're not doing really well at selling tablets if you look at the their samsung's ability to sell phones they sell a lot of phones they don't sell nearly as many phones on the level of the iphone that sell for that sort of price and that sort of feature category samsung has products that are priced at or above the iphone but those products are not selling that's not making the majority of their sales that's making about a third of their sales and those sales are about um like last year they sold 100 million of those while well, apple sold 150 million iPhones so in the in the sense of building iPhones r- alternatives samsung is doing worse than apple but in the sense of building like lots of phones things that are sort of smartphones and sort of you know just like super cheap in the area of 200 dollars they're making a lot of those But in the tablet market, they're not doing that. They're not selling just tons of cheap tablets, people. All their tablets combined are a few million.
0: But there are lots of tablets. I mean, if you go into, say, Best Buy's online catalog, you look up tablets, you'll find all these no-name brands for $60, companies you never heard of, and you wonder, okay, maybe people buy them for their kids. They don't want to spend $500 for an ipad or 329 and for an ipad mini so they get this cheap tablet but what we have daniel aaron dilger of apple insider joining us i'm gene steinberg you're in the tech night out live
8: free from the shackles of corporate america we're the place for independent thinkers gene c n
16: If you own a business, you need customers, right? Well, your potential customers are listening to this radio program right now, and I can help you reach them. Hi, I'm Matt Brower, a national marketing executive at the radio network responsible for this program. I can help you customize a national radio campaign that fits your budget, large or small, while targeting your specific audience. Call me to learn how radio advertising can make your business more profitable. 877 996 4327, extension 128. That's 877 996 4327, extension 128.
26: springtime is save big time at herbal healer academy long-term customers know spring is the time to stock up at herbalhealer.com and for new customers welcome to the web's best place to save on vitamins minerals and more Log on for spring specials, including our 500 parts per million colloidal silver, all sizes on sale. Choose from Herbal Healer's great variety of weight loss products like apple cider vinegar, hootia and metabolic complex, and pro-metabolic, all on sale now. Also, the anti-parasite intestinal freedom and warwood plus complex, plus stevia liquid sweetener and the super enzymes, all on sale for spring at herbalhealer.com. As always, we offer certificate correspondence courses in natural medicine. Enjoy same-day shipping and free online newsletter. Log on now to HerbalHealer.com and click on Spring Specials to save big with our nation's leader in supplying quality natural medicine and education since 1988, Herbal Healer Academy.
0: Welcome back to Get Night Out Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, it's Uncle Gene. Yeah, it's him. Here on the Tech Night Out Live, Apple Insiders, Daniel Aaron Dilger, all those great articles he writes for the publication. And now we're talking about the so-called alleged tablet market. So I was mentioning you have all these cheap, no-name tablets available, say, from Best Buy or also from Walmart. And you wonder who's buying them. I see they get three, four, five-star reviews sometimes. People seem to like them. But what's going on? Are they real products?
24: Well, in that sense, that's, that's uh, these no-name tablets. They call them white box. It's similar to the PC market, where you have you can walk into all the same companies, and there's just like fleets of various PCs, all kinds of options, and most of them are terrible. the The PC makers that are making computers on the level of Apple's Macintosh, and that can ask for a same price, that market is very small. But what's what what's interesting? What I was saying about Samsung is Samsung isn't sitting on a market where they're selling huge numbers of these cheap tablets, which is, I think it's interesting because they are doing that with phones. And tablets are not able to sell hardly anything there. You see them giving away tablets all the time.
0: But there is also a point that Tim Cook made. These other tablets are not consistent. It's not like you buy a windows PC. It's going to have the same OS. It's going to have the same operating system operate in very much the same way. With these tablets, different versions of Android, therefore a lot of different sorts of features and look and feel, and all sorts of different specs, and they aren't consistent products. So when you buy one of these tablets, unless you know what the specs are, the tablet you buy today may be very much different from the one tomorrow. You can't even maybe run the same apps on it.
24: Right, and one of the comments that Apple made in the conference call was this idea that if you make a product, really good and you sell it to people and they're really happy with it they're likely to come back and buy another product so the reverse is happening with all these android products because the whole the whole point about android is that it's just huge volume make up everything in volume and if you sell people phones that are sort of functional that people see this this could have value if it was done correctly but this is not being done correctly and it's frustrating to use it's a pain. And then they get an iPhone, and they're like, whoa, this is a much better product. That is a very much you know, PC to Mac uh, transition that people don't go back from.
0: Let me give you an interesting example of how this works. So, for example, we have the iPhone 5S with the fingerprint sensor, Touch ID. And let's be frank about it. It's not perfect. doesn't work consistently for everyone. It's been known in the past that you scan a fingerprint, and sometimes it deteriorates over time. Apparently, with the 7.11 iOS update, things are better. Not perfect, but works pretty well for most people. Then you've got a fingerprint sensor on the Samsung Galaxy S5 that you don't tap, you slide. Now, I was reading Walt Masberg's review from Recode. He's the guy who used to be with All Things D and Wall Street Journal, like the dean of tech journalists. He said he couldn't get it to work at all. Now, This is one of the most important features of Samsung's flagship smartphone, and it just doesn't work. And he's not the only one. Other people made the same comment. The reviewer from the New York Times said in comparing the iPhone 5S and the Samsung Galaxy S5, the Samsung's fingerprint sensor simply didn't work. Well, it almost always worked on the iPhone 5S. One more point. He mentioned the fact that In terms of real performance, the iPhone 5S released last September was faster than the Samsung, even though the Samsung's hardware would, in theory, have twice as specs. But Daniel, let's talk about the fingerprint thing first.
24: Well, if if you look at the obvious reason why Samsung added a fingerprint sensor, it was to maintain parity with Apple and not look behind. If you look at the reason Apple added a fingerprint sensor, it was... Partly to differentiate its products in a way that's useful, and everything they built about built around it was not only integrated into the experience, but it's integrated into Apple's technology. So when they came up when they developed the A7, the 64-bit chip, they a significant chunk of that chip is designed to handle this secure enclave coprocessor that takes a very serious takes a very serious role in, in security and it, it relates to the fingerprint sensor and it also relates to other other things how encryption is done and things like that on the phone but it's part of an entire package it's part of a whole game plan that's being laid out and a lot of thought is being given to how all these things work so that when you if you power off your phone and turn it back on you have to redo your fingerprint you have to enter your fingerprint in For Samsung, they're not doing that because it doesn't occur to them that that could be a security risk. If somebody steals your phone, they can turn it off and preserve it for some period, you know, any period of time until they can obtain a fingerprint from you, for example.
0: So they would assume that once they use the fingerprint, they can restart it and do anything they want. And the fingerprint is always detected. Whereas with Apple, of course, the restart requires you use your PIN code first.
24: Yeah, so it's a lot more thought went into... Anytime you have a security feature, you're you're trading off security with convenience. If you have if you lock your door key, you know, then you have to carry a key. That's a little bit of a problem, but it's not a huge problem. If you have a hundred locks on your house, then it starts to become this huge problem because you have this huge bunch of keys you have to do, you have to do each one. And it's like the likelihood of you leaving all those keys somewhere might happen. Uh, so there's there's a there's a sweet spot in between making things convenient and keeping things secure. And Apple's working really hard to maintain this this thing where it's secure enough to protect people and at the same time convenient enough to where people will actually use it. So Apple developed this whole remote activation, activation lock feature. They call it the kill switch, you know, when they're talking about in, in general terms, but it allows you to lock your phone so that if somebody steals it. You can not only blank it, but you can make it so that it can't be reused. So somebody can't just sell it, fence it off for money. Because it's no longer useful unless you unlock it. There's just like a whole bunch of interlocking strategies that Apple is using to create value for its buyers. And that's resulting in Apple being able to make more money on its products. And it's resulting in people wanting to pay money for the products because they're better. Samsung is not doing that. Samsung is kind of copying ideas, but on a very surface level. So they're copying a feature, they're not implementing it very well, And they're not giving a lot of thought to the security behind it because it's so convenient to use that it doesn't even work. And it's kind of wide open security. There's nothing there.
0: The whole point though is that a fingerprint sensor is a big deal. It became a big deal because of the iPhone 5S. So Samsung daring to have something out, and I guess it was the pressure. You gotta have a fingerprint sensor. Look what Apple did. They throw this together, they don't test it properly, it doesn't work. So When someone goes back to the store, he goes, say, to the wireless store, the AT&T or Verizon store, and they say, you know, I bought this phone and the fingerprint sensor doesn't work. Can I have a refund? Now, the guy might say, well, maybe your finger is too greasy or it's too big or it's too small, or there'll be a software update. We'll fix it. I mean, what do they say?
24: Well, I mean, I think a lot of it plays to customer satisfaction because there's a lot of times customers don't complain. I mean, there are, I mean, Samsung, I'm looking through their documents, they have a big problem with with customer returns, but um, there's a lot of customers who don't complain, but they are aware of how much work goes into a product. So if you buy a car and it's just a problem for the rest of your life, you think of that brand as being like, you know, a thorn in your flesh. It was not a great purchase. But when you purchase something and you really like it, it gives you a very favorable sense of that company because you can see how much extra work went into it. You see the thought that went into it and the engineering and the design and all these things to make it a good product. And that's what you want in the future. And Apple is really, really playing up that because that's kind of essential to their sales in the future. It would be really dangerous for Apple to come out with a low-end junky phone and just blow it out everywhere. And then um, have to deal with the problem of why why people not gonna want us in the future. And that's part of the problem that Samsung is suffering.
0: Customer retention is a very big issue, and Apple has that in spades. Samsung, obviously, not so much. We have Daniel Aaron Dilger of Roughly Drafted Magazine and Apple Insider, and I keep urging him to maybe do some more stuff with Roughly Drafted, but we'll see. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. <music>
17: quantitative easing, unemployment at depression levels, Europe's financial system falling apart, China getting out of U.S. Treasuries. At the end of 2008, the time of TARP, the national debt was at $11 trillion, gold trading around $850 per ounce. Close to 2012, the national debt exceeded $16.4 trillion, gold doubled to $1,600 per ounce. The $20 trillion threshold for the national debt is inevitable. Politicians in Washington have a ferocious appetite for spending and stimulus. What's worse, a printing press to finance.
14: products from municipal water berkey water filter systems are even powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water for the gold standard in water filters get a big berkey at big berkey and all gcn listeners get five percent off all ceramic filter systems for details call 1-877-99 berkey that's 877-99-BERKEY big berkey water filters for the love of clean water Question. Could
5: too many GMO foods and toxins be overloading your digestive and immune systems? Answer, yes. If you're searching for a powerful detox that's gentle enough to use every day, use Pro-EM-1 from Terragonics. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic that uses good bacteria to suppress pathogens and gently eliminate toxins from your body. A healthy digestive system will cleanse and remove toxins, support weight loss, improve absorption of food nutrients, and aid in controlling yeast and other infections. Pro-EM-1 is made with only non-GMO and certified organic ingredients, has no preservatives, and is dairy, soy, wheat, and gluten-free. Pro-EM-1 is the key to your digestive health. Order Pro-EM-1 daily probiotic cleanse at Terraganics.com. spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com or call toll-free 866-369-3678 That's 866-369-3678 Also available through Amazon Prime. Pro-EM-1 from TerraGanics. Life's getting better.
0: Here on the Tech Night Out Live, Daniel Aaron Dilger of Roughly Drafted Magazine, appleinsider.com. And someday we'll see more from Apple Insider. Back to the tablet market very briefly. Don't know if you saw this. So Microsoft releases their earnings. And apparently the stock went up, I guess, because they did better than expected. But earnings were pretty much flat across the board. So it was very much like last year, give or take a few. Now, they don't give out the numbers for Surface tablet sales. But supposedly, after a little bit of a jump in the December quarter, somebody did a few number crunching and said maybe they sold 800 or 830,000 Surface tablets. Remember, Apple sold 16 million-odd iPads. So more and more, we're seeing that the Surface was a huge, huge failure.
24: Not just Microsoft Surface, but all of the Windows tablet PCs that are Running Windows, it's not doing well as a tablet
0: platform. Not a viable tablet platform. That's interesting. What Microsoft did, I'd like to ask you about this. So, first they cut the prices of Windows licenses for cheap PCs. So, instead of spending forty or fifty dollars per license, which is the OEM fee, what the manufacturer pays, Microsoft it'll be ten dollars or fifteen dollars or something like that. You heard about that. I think we might have discussed it in the previous segment. Now, what's happened is for a screen smaller than 9 inches which means a smartphone or a smaller tablet the windows licensing fee is 0 all right so how does microsoft make money from windows phone
24: well they have to basically replicate what google's plan was is to make money from advertising and services cloud services things like that selling people office so both both android both google's android and Microsoft's Windows phone, Windows mobile platform, are unable to make money in software, which is interesting because during the 90s, which everyone could not not believe that there was no way anyone could make money in hardware because look at Apple and all the money was going to Microsoft. So software was where you should be, particularly the owning the platform. Today there are four platforms. There's Apple's iOS, there's Android, there's Windows Phone, and then there's the web, which is basically WebKit. Three of those are now free. One of them is bundled with hardware. So that's kind of interesting. So Apple has totally changed the game. Apple has turned it around so that software is almost free. All of Apple's apps are pretty much free. And the value of the platform is back where it was in the days of the Macintosh, where it's free. You, did, you buy the computer, and the platform is free. The Mac OS, the the iOS, you get free updates. And the benefit to that is that you don't have this fragmentation where the you know your Android update or your Windows update was based on you know when you last bought your phone. You constantly have new updates, so. It's sort of interesting that Apple has completely changed the rules of how things are sold.
0: Now, with the Office for iPad software from Microsoft, they don't sell it. You can download it, but to get all the features, you have to subscribe to Office 365. So they're pushing this cloud-based solution as a sales thing. It doesn't make maybe much sense to pay $100 a year for a home premium license for office 365 but suddenly if you got office apps on a mac or pc i guess it makes a difference that's their goal there well if you look at the you know the
24: the software market that, as defined by microsoft and adobe and all those companies they're wanting to sell 500 hundred dollar office suites or creative suites or whatever that's what they wanted to sell is every every couple of years they wanted to sell people a 500 hundred dollar package of software and a lot of it was getting pirated but it was Broadly enough accepted to where the people who would buy it, the office people, I mean, people, people in the enterprise business, people will pay whatever for it. So that's who they were getting their money from. Apple changed that by making apps a very inexpensive thing, particularly on iOS. You can get any app for less than $10. There's very few apps that are more than $10. Many of them are, are free with a service or something like that. So they completely changed how software is sold. The result is that companies like Microsoft and Adobe now have to figure out a, a better way to get money out of people who do have money and that's subscription. So if everyone's paying a subscription, then everyone's kind of paying a similar amount and it's, it's something that they can ask for. And there isn't this rigid schedule of how do we come up with a new feature every couple of years to get people to buy, pot, to buy the new suite for $500. And instead, every year it gives $100 and we'll just keep maintaining software which I think is a better idea because it means that there's going to be more effort put into making the software work as opposed to coming
0: up with features that get people to buy it. And bear in mind also here in a situation like that, in order for people to continue to use the software, they have to keep subscribing to it. So if you don't deliver a good product, they simply let their subscriptions lapse and that's it. Now, obviously, with Office for the iPad, what will happen is you'll be able to open and read your documents, but you won't be able to create new documents or edit them if you don't have an active subscription. So, again, this provides more of an incentive or even forces Microsoft to deliver the goods.
24: Yeah, so it's changing the software model from being a retail thing where you go to a store and you buy a box and you put it in your computer and it works for as long as you want it to until it's sort of obsolete to a model that's more like cable tv where you plug in your cable tv and you pay a fee every month to get this content so when you stop paying for it it stops working
0: i can see that a pay for play personal computer
24: but there's a lot of companies that like that model because it gives them a fixed notion of cost of how much their software costs instead of having a sort of interruptive upgrade cycles every couple of years where they have to roll out a huge new thing and that has to be new enough to get them to pay for it. That's one of the problems that Apple, that Microsoft had with coming out with new versions of Windows is that what's going to get people to upgrade? It has to have a certain number of features. It has to be blockbuster enough to get people to say, oh yeah, I want it to be on there. And Apple was sort of affected by that too. If you look at every version of Mac OS X, in order to get people to pay for it, they would have to have like, oh, here's the 150 features that the reason why you need to upgrade. Now they say we've done all these cool updates and fixed all these things, and here's some new things. You know, here's the new iBooks app, here's the new maps app for, for OS 10 Mavericks. And download it right now because it's free. And so the number of people that are on the, the latest version of Apple's platforms, both OS 10 and iOS, are dramatically far. It's un- uncomparable to anything else. It isn't a situation where if you're writing for Windows, you have to accommodate Windows XP from 10 years ago, or for Android, where majority of Android users are on a version of the system that's years old and doesn't support modern things. That's much harder to write software for.
0: We'll go into more of that question in a moment. Daniel Aaron Dilger from Apple Insider joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. <coughs>
8: The nation's largest independently owned and operated talk radio network. The Genesis Communications Network.
0: GCN. It's hard to
18: imagine when things are going reasonably well just how quickly things can change. But what would it take? Economic collapse? Massive crop failure? Chemical or biological attack? So many situations could find you in the grocery looking to pick up food for your family only to find that the shelves are empty. There's nothing. Don't let that happen. Act today to make sure that if it ever comes to that, you and your family will be provided for. Visit Freezedryguy.com to look at the wide variety of survival foods available. Freeze-dried foods from the Freeze-Dry Guy store longer, rehydrate faster, are nutritionally superior to, and taste better than any other long-term storage food available. Visit Freezedryguy.com or call toll-free 866-404-377 six six three freeze
10: No matter what the behavior—defiance, backtalk, angry outbursts, disrespect—we can help you stop it. Now you can get the total transformation for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. You can keep it forever for free.
11: Limited number of free programs available. Call now: one eight 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 nine one two one five nine five. That's one eight 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 nine one two one five nine five one eight eight eight.
12: 912 1595. What are you listening to? The Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. What's going to happen next? You never know.
0: With Daniel Aaron Dilger of Roughly Drafted Magazine, Apple Insider. Joining us, I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Let's move from that to one more thing here about depending on the hardware more than the software. So the sale of Nokia's handset and devices division is completed this week. And Microsoft owns it. So now Microsoft is offering Windows Phone licenses free. Obviously, it doesn't expect to earn money from itself. But maybe get other companies to do it but if microsoft owns the lead supplier of windows phone handsets why would any other manufacturer care
24: well there may be companies that want to differentiate themselves in some ways because if you look at um what samsung is doing to android it's hard to stand out as an android maker when you have this company that's you know has a scale of apple is competing against you and aggressively so so companies like htc which is producing phones that you know android nerds say that that's that's a better phone than what samsung is delivering and yet htc is not able to sell its phones because in part samsung is going and just trampling retail with billions of dollars to incentivize and push everyone towards selling a samsung phone so it's really hard to compete with samsung as a as a android vendor so this whole idea that Android is this big, wide-open platform where everyone gets along is, is never materialized. It was a huge fallacy, which I like to take credit for having predicted that. But um, Windows Phone is, is similar, but Microsoft has strong reason to want other people to make Windows Phone devices. Samsung doesn't. Samsung, doesn't. Samsung wants you to, to use uh, Tizen. That's their
0: new thing. Well, just to point out to listeners at the mobile world conference where they actually rolled out the galaxy S five stuck in the corner of a room was a Samsung smartphone kind of looking like one of the galaxies running Tizen, And basically the look and feel was very much the same. Yeah. They're not trying to differentiate the experience. What they're trying to do is, is
24: distance themselves from having to do what Google tells them to do because to be kind of google approved on android they have to include google's browser and google's store and google's maps and all the stuff that google does and they have to follow google's rules and so that's why when you get a new android phone it has two browsers and you know three email programs and a dozen different stores or whatever it's just sort of a mess for users that there's all these different competing interests at play where Microsoft is trying to sell more of a software version of iOS that says, here's the experience. We've created this whole experience. All you have to do is implement it as a hardware maker. It is a big problem now that Microsoft owns something like 95% of Windows phone is being sold because they Nokia. So, yeah, how do you compete with that? But it's it's sort of ironically easier, easier to compete with Microsoft, because Microsoft is wanting you to to be part of their platform, where Samsung has no interest in helping out other Android makers, and Samsung at the same time has its own platform that it wants to get other people on board with, so they can develop some critical mass. But again, once, once Samsung rules its own platform, it's going to have an even tighter control over that platform.
0: We're speculating here. Let's move on with this. We're speculating here about Samsung. When do you think this is going to happen, that they will have commercial Tizen smartphones and possibly tablets available? I think they said next year,
24: but it's not clear if anybody wants that. I mean, if you look at Windows Phone, Microsoft came out with this whole thing and the demand for it is just not there. I mean, Nokia went from being struggling to just almost being nothing. You know, they point out, uh, everyone was talking about how the iPhone 5C was just this, oh, terrible mistake. It wasn't selling enough. And, you know, it outsold all Nokia phones combined in the winter quarter. And beyond that, it sold, because Nokia makes 95% of the Windows mobile phones, it outsold every Windows phone. So it kind of puts into perspective when people say, oh, I think Apple should cancel the iPhone 5C because it wasn't, you know, this block. (laughs) It just blows me away that iPhone five C is just makes people go nuts. They just say the craziest things. It's just some kind of like crazy like intellectual kryptonite when when it gets brought up, people just say the craziest stuff. But but yeah, I mean, Microsoft's entire platform is smaller than that, and Tyson is not even on the horizon yet, and it's not clear who's going to look at Android and say, should I should I be in the sort of frenemy relationship with Google? which is trying to make its own devices or do I do the same thing with Samsung who Samsung is like crazy backstabbing destroys its own partners. I mean, I remember people from Nokia telling me they would have Samsung designing a part coming up with something. And then all of a sudden Samsung would be advertising it before they even finished their contract. They'd be advertising as, as if it was their own thing before they even finished building it for the competitors who were trying to partner with them. When you see stuff from the the trial about how Samsung was just iterating over the iPhone, just trying to steal everything about it, so it could be just like Apple's product, that seems kind of shocking until you realize that's how Samsung operates. That's their DNA. Their DNA is stealing everything everybody else does and coming out with sort of a
0: half-assed copy of it. And if you look at all the documents that have been brought forth in the Apple versus Samsung trial, They show there where they tried very hard to do it themselves. They can't do it. So they had to try as hard as they could to imitate what Apple did.
24: Yeah. And, you know, Apple makes it look really easy. It's not, it's not easy at all. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. And it takes a lot of saying no to things that are like possibly okay. Apple says no to a lot of things that are, you know, possibly could be turned into a product, but they wouldn't sell. Probably wouldn't sell well. So Apple says, no, we're going to focus on the things that are going to definitely sell really well because that's going to create a halo and people are going to realize that if we produce something, it's not going to be terrible.
0: I mean, we do have sometimes things that don't work as well as they show on Apple products like the mobile me cloud service or Apple maps. But even then the thing function, I mean, maps work mostly had some serious problems, but it's. Compared to Samsung's fingerprint sensor, which never works, at least there was room to grow.
24: Yeah, and we're, we're talking about software features. So, for Apple to go out of their core competency in hardware and to build an entire maps infrastructure, to say in the, the first year that Apple released a product, it wasn't at feature parity with Google's seven year old kind of state of the art in terms of, you know, mapping from a computer that sort of comparison is difficult to make if you compare two hardware companies that are both trying to deliver products one is delivering ones that you just look at and you think who would even buy this i don't even understand who this this galaxy gear is for who could possibly want this and they show these like pretty young people dancing around with it and it's like that's not something that people want today the demographic of models that they're showing with wearing these bangly nerdy watches that's not realistic apple doesn't come out with just this crazy array of various slap shot, you know throwing mud at the walls to see what might work out when they come out with something it's blockbuster because it has to be but that's also a risk for apple because how does apple come out with an experiment if you look at apple tv it's it came out and it was not a blockbuster thing when it first came out they uh, described it as, as a hobby the whole time, but several years later, it's starting to turn into a significant business. It's like a billion dollar business. So how does Apple come out with experimental new things like that and grow them into businesses in kind of new areas? Like Apple had never been in the living room before, really. And now it has the potential to start working on things like, you know, video game consoles, if that's possible, or, you know, other things. Other
0: areas of home automation they can plug into that in various ways let's do the break daniel aaron dilger joining us i'm gene steinberg you're in the tech night out live
8: we are the premier independent talk radio network the genesis communications network g c
0: n
13: foot church building for under $69,000. With the economy improving and interest rates still at historic lows, you can't afford to wait. So call 866-91-STEEL. Lock in your price now. Call 866-91-STEEL. That's 866-917-8335.
9: Visit the Berkey guy at goberkey.com and be sure to click the red products on sale now button. You can always call toll free 877 886 3653. Again, that's 877 886 3653. Goberkey.com, home of the Berkey guy. You have all seen and heard about the elements of the periodic table. These elements are the building blocks of everything in the universe. You, my friends, are made from these elements. A shortage of any of these important trace elements can lead to disease. Go with the science and take the Lady Talk Health Challenge and get all 90 essential trace elements with a healthy start pack at LadyTalkLive.com or call 855-333-LADY. That's 855-333-5239.
10: Research shows it's not just what you put in your body that counts, it's what you put on it as well. Why not use an all-natural, healthy, mineral-based makeup that actually benefits your skin? Once you experience the airiness and flawless coverage of longevity mineral makeup, you will never use anything else. With Yongevity, the perception of your complexion will be natural perfection. Animal-friendly mineral makeup at Mary Lou Health. That's marilu com or call 855-321-HEALTH.
12: You're listening to the Tech Night Owl Live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: With Daniel Aaron Dilger of Apple Insider, we have him here for the final segment. And we're talking about the Apple's possible new products we know they're spending the money on r&d all that information's coming forth they're promising new products in new categories obviously we don't know what they're going to be so we have to kind of guess and daniel do you do that kind of guesswork do you want to guess whether there's going to be an iwatch or not
24: it looks like apple's working on wearables if you look at um if you look at previous things if you look at the tablets when they came out with the ipad If you look at the tablets that came out before it it was that much of a difference that made the iPad successful, and so if you think about watches, what would it take to make, a, you know, an iWatch successful? And in after all these other things hadn't been, and it would require either something that was very useful that delivered a lot of value, and there's a lot of sensors that you can pack into a wearable that you that aren't really there with a smartphone. I think one of the one of the coolest things about the smartphone is that they have packed a lot of different sensors into it so that this development platform of what you can do with it, if you have a compass and if you have gyroscope and you know where you're at in space, you can now just like hold it up and, and see like a, a display of the heavens mapped onto just the sky. And you can see where constellations are, where satellites are. And that's a really cool idea that just comes from the fact that there's a lot of sensors in it. So, if you develop the same kind of wearable with sensors, you not only create value for individuals who want to buy it to like track your health or things like that. But there is some interest in that already with these health band trackers. You also create an opportunity to develop really interesting apps that not only tell you about your world, but also tell you about everybody else's world collectively. So whereas having an iPhone with a GPS and everyone's using for directions, you can now get the data from all those people that are looking for directions to provide better directions. And you can take their feedback, you can take their real world positioning to understand where traffic is happening so you can avoid traffic. Those similar kind of things could be done in in a wearable that had health monitoring aspects. You can see this is what happens, you know, right before you have a heart attack, your heart does this. So if this is happening to you, you need to get medical attention right away. That's something that's very valuable.
0: Well, it also gives the doctors more information on what's going on in your body, more to the point medical researchers could learn how conditions are precipitated by all these monitoring stations. Of course, I guess people would be concerned here uh, about security, though.
24: Well, yeah, I mean, there's some things that are... You know, you don't, you don't want people to have access to your personal medical record. But if a scientist can look at just raw data for a huge number of things, huge number of people and see this is what happens. And when the weather changes this much, here's what everyone's heart does. Here's what everyone's breathing does. Here's whatever, you know, we can suddenly have access to all kinds of information that was never possible before. It's very similar to, you know, GPS and traffic. Or just the fact that people are using this device creates huge amounts of new, very useful data that can be turned around and and benefit them directly and also benefit society in kind of indirect ways. So we now have all this information that we can kind of elucidate other facts from and, and make conclusions from. So I think it would be incredible in terms of just the science involved of what happens once we start wearing technology and i think that's far more useful than than having a a camera attached to your glasses so that you can videotape other people and walk around with a pc you know i think it's much more interesting the idea of what you can do if you had wearable access to an array of sensors and there's so much potential there there's so many things you can add and if you look at every generation of iphone that's a lot of what they were doing was adding new things to it that we're able to um, monitor the environment in in ways that were useful for both the user and also generating data that could um, benefit cloud services and apps and things to do useful tasks. So it's the watch I see as sort of an extension of what the iPhone, what the smartphone has been able to do. And it's really important to have a platform because smartphones existed before the, the iPhone, but they were just kind of curiosities. Nobody was doing these amazing, cool apps that iOS enabled. I mean, Apple really radically changed software. So that instead of having like the software packages, kind of desktop app that you bought, you now have this sort of feature that you have on your phone that you can pull up and do something with. And it's so simple that you don't have to learn how to use it. They've created this platform that's incredibly easy to use, that anybody can use. So they just made this incredible um, Swiss Army knife kind of tool that does anything you want it to do. You want to do something else, somebody comes up with a good idea, they can create a startup, get funded, push out this idea and benefit millions of people.
0: You know, let's look at this also with the iWatch. Now that creates obviously a platform for new apps and such. I was thinking here, if Apple is going to introduce an iWatch, at the WWDC in June... You introduce it there. You launch it. You don't sell it. You just say, here it is. Here's a demonstration of what it could do. Because you make a version of iOS available to run special iWatch apps and give developers a chance to begin to develop those apps. So by the time the thing goes on sale in the fall, say, they've got existing structure. Oh, could be. I mean, especially if you want to develop stuff that's gonna work on a product like that. I assume it's still gonna be iOS, but there will be what some changes in the app so it runs on that platform, or maybe it'll just run a normal iOS app with certain limitations. I don't know.
24: So iOS is really powerful because iOS is basically it's it's OS 10 with a focus on mobile devices. So it's always it's it's a Mac appropriate to a mobile device. So it's more careful about how it uses power and the user interface is all about touch. And it's very rapid on a mobile, on a on a wearable device. Um, the benefits of having the entire thing running a desktop computer system is less because you could have a a, a wearable device with a very simple, like iPod, almost like user interface. And if you do that, then you, you can save a lot of power by not having a full iOS kind of system on it. It could be sort of a peripheral, like, smart device that interacts with your other devices. That's possible. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It hasn't been released
0: yet. Exactly. But the reason I suggested maybe introduce it to WWDC is you want to get developers involved, even if you're using a different iOS. You're using an iWatch OS, whatever it is. I don't yeah. know. I don't pretend to know what Apple's plans are. I don't have any insights. I think you'll learn, as you mostly do with about things like this, you'll learn more about the hardware, although not so much about an iWatch because we haven't seen much in the rumor sites. You'll learn more about the hardware because things leak from the supply chain. You won't necessarily learn about software features because that's more embedded within Apple. There you go. Daniel Aaron Dilger, please tell our listeners where they can find more of the stuff that you do.
24: I primarily write for Apple Insider, and I also have my uh, roughly drafted.com com blog that has like all the stuff I've written over the last 10 years. And I post to Twitter. It's at Daniel Aaron,
0: E-R-A-N. And there you go. You can find us on Twitter. We're known as Tech Nite Owl at Tech Nite Owl on Twitter to find us. And if you follow us, maybe we'll follow you. You go to our web portal, TechNightOwl.com. That's TechNightOwl.com. We've got another radio show about UFOs and things that go bump in the night known as the Paracast. And this week, we're going to talk about a paranormal movie called Alien Abduction based on the legend of the Brown Mountain Lights, a real phenomenon in North Carolina. We'll have the filmmaker, director, Maddie Beckerman on Paracast at Paracast.com. That's Paracast.com. Here on the Tech Night Owl Live, Daniel, Aaron Dilger, thanks for joining us on the show.
24: Yeah, thanks for having me, Gene.
25: The Tech Night Owl Live is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. We'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel.